on the previous episode of the Prime Life Project with John Petrelli. His tooth goes flying, his head cracks open, he's laying on the pavement. There's that saying that hurt people hurt people. I never had anybody that I felt comfortable enough with, or I didn't feel comfortable enough with myself to ever talk to somebody and tell them that. I said, you, you, this, the second half of your story, mate, is um, like I said, it, it's, it's bizarre because that in and of itself, what we've just done, however long we've been going, is insane. I want people to actually be surprised in the second half of how you managed to turn your life around. So I don't think I'll actually give too much away because it, it, your transition is, is insane. This time on the podcast. If I had not been arrested, if I had not slept on floors, if I had not gone through all the things that life had thrown me earlier, I may not have been prepared to handle this. So those things that I saw as shameful that I would never talk about for years, those things that I saw as weaknesses in me ended up becoming the thread of who I was and put me in a better place mentally to make a definitive decision to go I am not going to go to this place of negativity, but mm. those things had to happen to me. So when you're out there and you're listening and you have the shame connected to something that happened to you in the past, know that if you take it forward and you own it, it can help you on the next challenge. Welcome to the Prime Life Project podcast, a place to help you unlock your full potential, both mentally and physically, to become the best version of you. Welcome back to an episode of the Prime Life Project Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel James, and today I have part two of a returning guests episode. If you haven't watched the previous episode, I'm going to link it in the show notes, and if you're on YouTube, there'll be a little link at the top. I strongly recommend you go and listen to the first part of this episode, because uh, it's absolutely incredible. However, at the start of this episode, there should have been a bit of a quick recap for you uh, to bring you back up to speed. So my guest today for the second time is Mr. John Petrelli. John, how are you, my friend? I'm doing really well, brother. How about yourself? Really, really well, thank you. Like I said, just loved the first part of this um, this journey of yours. And as I said, preparing for this, I went back and listened to the first episode. And then in that, it kind of hinted where we were going at today. And I'd forgot half of the stuff. I was just excited to talk to you. I was thinking, oh, mate, we've got a lot to talk about. So just a quick refresher for the audience that haven't watched the, the previous episode is we kind of picked up where uh, growing up, um, struggling with the anger issues, really good martial artists, nearly went got sent to, to jail for roundhouse kicking someone um it kind of all came to a head hit rock bottom where you got into a massive fight someone looked in the eyes and said i'm going to shoot you dead now where we're picking this up is you basically jumped on a plane and you move into california so can we just pick up from there like what what kind of headspace were you in when you'd kind of got on that flight flying over to california did you know anyone in california like what was the reason why you're moving there great so yes i had a dear friend of mine who had moved to California. And um, by the way, thank you for taking the time and recapping that. It is uh, amazing. And I really, once again, thank you for the platform that you give to us to provide a story that maybe people can relate to and go, hey, I'm in a dark time right now and other people have been there and I can work my way through this because all these things that we're going to talk about today, I hope to leave some clues for people that they can follow the path to their own use their pain to be their story to help other people. Right. And we can Absolutely. keep this momentum going brother. And, and saying that the reason I say that is because I didn't have many options at that point in my life. I was 20 years old going on 21 and I made a desperate phone call to a friend of mine that lived in California. And I had a couple hundred dollars to my name. And I said, listen, I'm going to end up dead or I'm going to end up in jail and I need another option. Can you help me? I want to move to California. And he said to me, I don't have any room for you to stay, but if you can sleep on my floor, 
then you can come. And so I packed my bags in a single suitcase. It was a duffel bag and I had a couple hundred dollars. And just to recap, my parents took me to the airport and that was the time when TSA, there was no TSA. So they didn't exist and they could walk me to the gate. And my parents walked me to the gate, not fully understanding or never I divulged to them that I had a, a threat against my life and I had very few options and I felt like a caged animal. And my mom and my dad took me to the airport, walked me to the gate. And it was the first time in my life that my father embraced me, called me son and said, I love you. Mm. And for me, it like cracked my interior, it cracked my soul, it cracked my heart. Um, just to know that number one, he felt that right. And that he actually was able to verbalize that mm -hmm. because so much of our conversation had been in conflict. So much of our conversation had to deal with my dad's PTSD and not being able to communicate and having that military rough exterior. So I got on that plane, brother, for someone that gave me a chance, they just gave me a chance to sleep on their floor. And I felt the weight of the world lift off of me as those miles started going behind me on the airplane. And I felt there was a new future at hand, even though I didn't know what it was. I was excited that it was new, mm -hmm. that I didn't have to be beholden to my own BS of having to be a tough guy, that I didn't have to be beholden to my own image that I had to portray to other people that was false to my soul and just on the exterior. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what it was. I was excited, but I knew I needed to change my geography to get a new peer group, to get a new future because I didn't have the fortitude within me to avoid temptation, to avoid peer pressure, nobody else's fault, but my own, but I needed to mature as a human being. And on that plane headed to California, that process started. What did the guy that you were, that you contacted, what did he expect was going to greet him? Now, what, what I mean by that was, was he expecting an angry John? Was he expecting this show off? Was he expecting this miserable? Like, what was he expecting? for you to be like coming off that plane? And how did you handle that situation? Because obviously you, what you don't want to do essentially, and again, I don't know how this whole story unfolds, but you're trying to move away from that version of yourself. Yet, loads of people in their lives, they're trying to step away from that version of themselves. And what then happens is you're trying to create a new version, but if someone expects you to be that old version of you, it's very then hard to then still walk that path of the new version so did your friend expect you to show up as a certain way did he know anything about this kind of version of you like how did that whole thing unfold if that makes sense that's a great question and i you know i will i'm going to have a conversation my friend's name's daryl and ask him that now i can only go upon what i believe he expected so i don't have his answer to that and he his, he lived with his uncle. He was playing football in Southern California for a Division three school, and his uncle let him stay with him. So literally, James Treen, his uncle, I owe a debt to. He's passed away, and he had his own struggles, and we'll get into that. But he opened up his heart. He opened up his house and gave me an opportunity, and he was known for offering other people from his local neighborhood to come and start a new life. I wasn't the first person to come out there, and he... He had his challenges. None of us are perfect, but man, he was a saint and I am in debt to him forever because of that. So I don't know what my friend expected, but I know he knows who I was. He lived one street away from me growing up and he's a crafty individual. You know, he grew up with a single parent household. His, his mom raised him and his grandparents raised him and he had to get by uh, in different ways. And so I know he, he was streetwise. He knew what was going on with me, but he never 
He never verbalized any expectations. He never verbalized anything, but my friend, I'm going to give you an opportunity and I'm going to help you. Mm -hmm. So as I look back at this as an adult 30 years later, man, I'm so grateful because he just said, man, this is going to be what you make out of it. I'm going to help you as much as I can. Uh, I'm going to help you as a friend. I'm going to help you as a brother. And um, we hit the ground rolling. We hit the ground rolling. We, we, I got a job when I got there with his uncle working landscaping. I was digging ditches and doing whatever I had to do to put a few dollars in my pocket and very grateful for it. And uh, I graduated from that quick, pretty quickly. And I started going door to door wearing his last name was Treen and the name mm -hmm. of his company was Treenscape. I had a polo and I was pitching, I was pitching sod with grass and, and pools and everything else. I had no idea. But man, it really helped me get on my feet. And um, I ate cans of tuna for a long time and maybe some ramen noodle. But uh, it was, I was happy to do it. I was happy for the opportunity. Was he, um, sorry, I forgot um, your friend's uncle's name, Derek's uncle's name. Um, so what was his name? Daryl. Daryl, Daryl. So yep. was Daryl kind of like mentoring you at this point then? So you, you're there doing this landscaping. And obviously you said that you took a lot of people in, gave him a second chance. Um, was he almost like mentoring you? Was he giving you advice or was he literally yes. just giving you space to just be you? No, he was giving me advice. He, he Daryl was my friend and his uncle was Jimmy Treen. Oh, Jimmy, and Jimmy, Jimmy yeah. was going through AA. Jimmy had uh, a substance uh, issue. He had, was fighting his own demons. And through AA, he learned a lot of processes. And he was definitely helping me. He was, I called him Uncle Jimmy, even though he wasn't my uncle, because he was acting in that capacity. And he was so giving and caring. And more than telling me anything, more than telling me anything, Daniel, I watched what he did. And I saw what he did. We had people living in the house with me. One guy was arrested for manslaughter and spent 10 years in jail and came out and Jimmy gave him a new start by sleeping on our couch. And he also had a, a crystal meth problem where that guy's had rotted teeth and Jimmy paid for his teeth to get fixed out of his own pocket because he knew that a potential employer would see that and, and, and not want to have him as the face of his business. So I watched him do these things from his heart and it started permeating who I was more than anything that I, he told me. And he told me plenty. But I'm like, look at this guy. He's got his own struggles, but he still has enough time to help other people. He still has enough minute to listen. And he was very caring. And he started bringing me back. Like he would go to church and he's like, hey, you want to go to church with me? My church may not be for some people at that point. It wasn't necessarily for me. But the things that they started talking about in church and doing started really piercing this hard shell that I had and it wasn't instantaneous but it was a process mm -hmm. and I look back and I'm so grateful for all those things that I saw him do mm -hmm. right I was gonna say, I was gonna say from, from the first part of your story one of the biggest things okay. that we covered was that you were very selfish very yes. selfish and self-absorbed that was one of the biggest like, take-homes then you kind of hammering home at that point and again you own full responsibility for it so I imagine for someone that's in that kind of headspace to see somebody be so selfless and literally like you're seeing and knowing that he's got his own struggles yet here he is being so selfless the exact opposite of what you were I imagine that must have really taken you by surprise and almost given you a lot to think about whether you were aware of it or not like the, the conflict of wow was that a hard thing for you to see at that point M meaning like how you had been versus how this guy does that make sense 
yes, my reflection of who I had been was hard for me to see. And I started having the realization more and more of who that really was. But seeing him do those things really shined a light on that. And I wanted to pay him back. I wanted to be his best employee. And I ended up being that like, I wanted to sell landscaping for this guy. I had no, and so I wore his shirt with pride. I was representing him because I knew who he was as a person. Now, someone on the outside might look at that and go, that's an individual that had a drinking problem. That's an individual that had a drug problem and, and just label them as that. But we're so much more than a temporary label in that moment in our life. And he was trying to, to transcend that and do good things. And he affected me as I sit here with you. And I know, I know of dozens of individuals that he affected mm -hmm. positively while still working on himself, while still healing himself, mm -hmm. right? I, I think there's a beautiful thing of it. And again, his story, your story, my story. And again, counts of the peoples is that you look back at your life and there's things that maybe you're ashamed of. There's things that still to this day, when you look back and reflect it, it bothers you. Like I literally just recorded in between our episodes, I've recorded my story. So it's two hours of basically Katie, my girlfriend, interviewing me. And it's not comfortable when you go back and realize the kind of person you were. But something I said in that, which I think kind of summarizes this, is that I can't change the past, but all I can do is from the moment I made the decision to change and own what I've been, judge me from what I then do from that point onwards and the good that I'm trying to put out there. So for that gentleman there, what you're doing right now, like all he's doing was putting good out there. Then what did that do? That then gave you the second chance. Now what are you doing? Putting good out there. And it, it kind of like, it's that butterfly effect of just give somebody the opportunity without judging them and let their actions speak louder than their words. Cause a lot of people talk a good game and say they're going to change. But actually just look at their actions that they're actually taking and doing that. And that guy clearly sort of encompassed that. I'm very, very curious. Obviously, you mentioned his actions had a big, big impact on you. Is there one or two things that he said to you that really kind of just clicked for you? Is there anything that you can think of that like yeah, lessons almost? I, I know for sure. I had certain points of view on things, whether it was politics, even though it was on a very superficial level or whatever it may be. And he told me, just keep an open mind to hearing other points of view. And being able to have a discussion, because look at I me, mean, even at 50 years old, I hope to have another 50 years, whatever my time is, it is, and I want to make the maximum of it. But if we're so set in stone that we can't hear another point of view, he taught me compassion. He helped teach me compassion of listening to what other people have to say, and helping craft maybe a new narrative for me, or maybe strengthen the narrative I already have, whatever it is, but I have to have open ears. And so we used to have talks. And he, it was difficult for me to understand his plight at one point, like, man, why would you drink again? Or why would you take drugs again? You know what it has done to you. And he had his own narrative and his own process he had to go through. And, and it helped me to look at me and go, well, geez, why would I want to get in a fight again? Why do I want to start trouble again? It's the same thing. It's a parallel, different vices. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I started going, where am I getting off to tell him to not crack a bottle of vodka again? Right. I know how bad it is for him and that it sends him in a dire, a downward spiral. But how about me making proper choices? How about me starting or saying something that I should have to start an argument, to start a confrontation or to not let something go over my head and just let it go because somebody said something. Mm. So yeah, there were things. And the main thing was have an open mind and listen to other people's point of views and give them opportunity to speak and be open to learning something new. Mm. I love that. I love that. So at what point then did you start to become 
the John Petrelli that you are now? Like, w- at what point did you kind of stop doing the landscaping, stop working um, for Jimmy? And what, what kind of, what led you down the path that you eventually got into? Because I, I imagine, like I said, there's a gentleman here that, again, is basically giving you the second chance. So I imagine it was hard for you to kind of step away from that. So mm-hmm. at what point, what kind of happened where you kind of made that decision of, actually, do you know what? I've got this now. And then what kind of led you down the next stage of your life? So when I came out there, I had aspirations of being a fitness trainer. This is back in 1993. There was one certification for fitness training by American Council on Exercise. I was pretty verbal with that. And I was proud of the fact that I wanted to do that. And Jimmy had no problem with me stepping away from helping him out. I transitioned. I was working landscaping during the day. I had another job bouncing at night. And in the middle of the day, when there was a couple hours of downtown downtime, I was studying And I had been diagnosed with learning disabilities and everything. So I took my time studying and I found something I was passionate about. I start, it was easy to read the pages because man, this is something I'm interested in. And I wanted to be able to learn this to help other people. I'm like, I'm starting a new future with this. And so not only did I transition from that landscaping and make my way into training, but I ended up becoming Jimmy's trainer and I helped pay him back by not even charging him for training in the beginning. Um, But I ended up studying, I took a test at San Diego State University, maybe six months after studying on for this test. It was probably the first test I had passed since sophomore year in high school. And this is back in the day where you took a test, I had to wait four to six weeks for the mail to come for them to (laughs) tell me I passed, right? (laughs) And so I was sweating and I was working that whole time. And I finally got the the notice in the mail that I'd passed and I got certified to be a trainer. And brother, I had no answers to what I had to do forward. I just had will and I had desire because this is back in the day when we had, um, uh, people probably hadn't even know, know about this, but an answering machine. <laughs> and so I paid, I had flyers made and I pa- paid kids in the neighborhood to pass them out. And instantaneously the man above was watching over me because my phone started ringing literally that day. And I had an outgoing message on my answer machine. I came in from landscaping. People are calling me about training. I didn't know how much I was going to charge I didn't know where I was going to train them. I had no answers <laughs> to the simple questions. And on top of that, Daniel, I felt embarrassed that I was 21 years old. And in my mind, I said, when I call this person back, I am going to use a deeper voice <laughs> to make them think I'm older. <laughs> so I would call it back and I'm like, yes, this is John Petrelli. You called him on trade. <laughs> and uh, It was a learning process, but I started training people immediately. I found a private studio that just happened to open then, and they were looking for trainers. And all these things, if I look back and I look at what the odds of these things of happening are, it's like winning the lotto. But somebody was directing me at a higher power to to have a studio open immediately, for me to pass the test, for people to call me instantaneously. I knew none of that then. But I look at it and the odds are so long. Mm. And I started training. My first client was this beautiful girl named Zahia. And she paid me $12 an hour to help her. And I couldn't have been happier because if you remember back, I don't know if we covered it, but before I left New York, I was catching shoplifters for a department store named Bradley's. And I was getting $7.25 an hour. I had a knife pulled on me. I had a gun pulled on me. And I had to choke someone unconscious and intimate apparels mm. uh, that was stealing. So now I'm making $12 an hour and no one has a knife that wants to stab me. 
I mean, I'm living on top of the world. <laughs> I, I, the thing is, I, I remember my first time I had, a, I remember this, the first time I had a, a personal training client and I, her name was Heidi. So again, you always remember your first client I had. Uh-huh. And again, so again, I think you're very similar to me. Like when I've got qualified as a personal trainer in the UK, again, you're talking 15 years ago, uh, we had to do like a year long course. So you had to go to a college and do like practical uh, stuff as well. It wasn't just the stuff online now. We can do it in an evening and you qualify. It wasn't like that. It was proper in depth. And I had no idea what I was doing. That first session, literally had no idea what I was doing. I was like, oh my God. And I felt like I'd stolen this woman's money. So then I basically went on a mission to basically just read and just absorb information. But I'm just very curious. Where did this, because you kind of mentioned it. Because again, I just want to speak to something you said there as well, because we covered last time about the dyslexia and how you sort of really helped me with that. It was something you uncovered for me. Um, when it comes to dyslexia, I was exactly the same. It's the fact that when I was at school, I didn't want to read Shakespeare. I struggled to read normal English. And now you're trying to get me to read old English. I can't understand normal sentence structures. And you're trying to get me to understand a poem. I don't get it. And I'm not interested in it. But as soon as I found something I was interested in, I loved it. And I wanted to read. So you're saying that that was the same thing with you, actually. Once you found something you wanted to read, bam, there's your attention. There's your focus. And you loved it. But you kind of mentioned also there as well that... Um, you wanted to pass it so much. You were so determined because you wanted to help other people. Did that come from Jimmy or was that something that you'd wanted to do for a long time? You didn't really know. Like what made you want to help other people so badly? Great question, Daniel. So man, uh, before I even get into that, I hated Shakespeare too. I remember being in college. I'm like, who talks like this? I can't even under, it's exactly. It. And it was horrible. And I got the spark for wanting to help other people when I got arrested. And I knew that I had to do something else, even though I didn't know what it was at that point. And that was a spark. And when I saw Jimmy helping other people, it turned into a fire, mm-hmm. right? It turned into a fire. And when I got on the plane, that spark had already gotten to a, a better place where I was like, I want to be in something that people are happy to see me. And I'm happy to see them. I thought about maybe going into law enforcement. When I was catching shoplifters, I saw and talked to some of the police officers that would pick up the people that I apprehended for shoplifting. And so much of their day was dealing with maybe not the greatest parts of society and having stress. And I said, I want to do something where people are happy. And even though it may be tough, it may be challenging, I may be able to add just a little bit to help them through that and help navigate them to where they want to go. And so it really did turn into a fire when I saw Jimmy doing that. And then to be able to reciprocate. And he asked me really out of the goodness of his heart, he goes, can I be one of your first clients and to help Mm. him and to see his progress, man, my life was now changing at a much faster pace. I was seeing it before my eyes and I really went in with the intentions, honestly, that I was going to help people. But what I found is as I became less selfish, as I put myself on the other side of the table, and these people invited me into the intimate part of their life, their body, their mind, all these things, they were changing my body, my soul, as much, if not more than I was changing theirs. They trusted me. Why do you think that changed you so much? Like, what do you think the catalyst for that was? Like, what, what? So I, I understand it again, unless you've really mm-hmm. actually worked with someone like that. So I understand that. But for, for all, for people here that have never personal trained, had either had a personal trainer or been a personal trainer, can you try and explain why you think that was? Yeah, I know for me why it was, whether you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a fireman, when you put yourself on the other side of the table and your focus is to helping people that comes back to you tenfold. The, the gratitude I get from them, the appreciation, the, 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 
man, the self-respect I start having for myself, how I start viewing myself in a different light to lay my head down at the pillow at the end of the day and go, man, I really felt like I made, even if it's a small difference, I made a difference in someone else's life, made a difference in my life. Mm -hmm. I understand how a nurse can go into the hospital and see all these people in disarray and work her or his butt off for 12 hours and come home and go, you know, that was super tough. That was beyond what many people may deal with in a year, I deal with in a day, but I have such satisfaction from just easing someone else's pain or helping them. Mm. And that's what it was for me. That's what really started changing me. And uh, I started meeting a new peer group. Mm. I started meeting people that were successful in all different areas of their life and needed help on this one area of their life to make that wheel, you know, put that spoke on that wheel to make the wheel turn. So maybe they were tremendous in finances, or they were tremendous in starting a business, or they had other aspects of their life, and they needed this fitness component, maybe for health, maybe they had diabetes, whatever. And I could be that little bit of a spoke on this wheel that got that car going. And then they saw something in me, and they saw my, my, my that I was genuine in helping them. Yes, I got paid, but the 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 money was a byproduct of helping them. Mm. It was simply that. And they wanted to help me in other parts of my life. They're like, can we have you over for dinner? You know, can we, you know, I'd love for you to meet my family. I'd love for you to meet someone else that's a friend of mine that also may need a trainer. And mm. now you start getting into a different peer group. And I started learning from all different parts of lives that I was never exposed to. Mm. I never met people that were hedge fund managers or ran, you know, 10 businesses. And now I'm sitting and I get to talk with them and they get to talk with me while I'm helping them. And they're departing all this knowledge upon me. And it was just like the perfect training grounds for me to go from being an adolescent boy in a man's body to becoming a man in a man's body. And there was a pivotal point. Did you feel at any point imposter syndrome? Did you feel like you didn't belong? Did you feel like you weren't good enough? All that stuff that people get when they're, because again, we're, we're linking this to where you were and they go into fitness syndrome. There's a lot of people, again, when it comes to fat loss, let's say they're trying to lose a hundred pounds and they go through that kind of identity crisis or when people first step on stage to do public speaking or singing or whatever the hell it is, that first time they're doing something different that's out of their comfort zone. Did you feel that imposter syndrome? If so, like how did you kind of work through that? You bet your ass I did. <laughs> yes, you better believe I did. I remember thinking about it. And I remember literally sweating on the way to my first client, like sweating. And I just had to give it over. And the more I know this may sound redundant, but the more I just really focused on them and not me, and realized that they were meeting someone new. Yeah, they were putting they were nervous. And I can sense that about them. And it put me at ease because my job then was no longer to put myself at ease. It was to help them feel comfortable. And in that essence of it, I became more at ease. Yeah. So for sure. And as I just got repetitions on the mat, as I just got, you know, time of just training people, I felt more comfortable. And as I saw results come with them, results were coming with me, I gained more confidence. I think it feels natural to feel nervous about that, maybe feel like an imposter. And in fact, if we don't feel a little bit nervous in something, we're probably not challenging ourselves enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I agree. We, I agree. We got to feel that, right? That was butterflies and, and we can redefine it as excitement. But as I 
if we're not feeling that you're probably not stretching mm -hmm. enough. And so people were kind with me. They understood I was starting out. I was kind with them. We were patient with each other, but man, I got to tell you, I do really feel I've been blessed in so many ways. Within a couple months, I had so much business that I went from one client to working 40 hours a week and seeing eight to 10 people a day because word of mouth just started happening. And I always, since day one, just inertly, no one really told me this, but I just was focused on what was in front of me mm -hmm. and taking care of what was in front of me. And that therefore then multiplied. It was a force multiplier and it started just bringing me more business, more clients. And I just took care of whatever was in front of me. That's such a, again, I was glad you picked on, picked one because I was going to say something earlier on. You've kind of linked it back to me. Anyone listening to this as a, a businessman, entrepreneur, self-employed, um, everyone focused on making money, but the best thing to do is just focus on that one client that's in front of you. Treat them like they're the only client you've got. Treat them like they're the most important person on the planet because they are, and then it's word of yes. mouth. If you do a good job with that one person, word of mouth spreads, and people don't understand the power of that. Yes, you talk about social media and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, great, paid advertisement, but nothing is more powerful than word of mouth recommendations on anything. I like just listen to, just think about people listen to this. Think about when you go to a restaurant. So you can see a, a paid advert on Instagram or something like that versus your friend telling you, I've just gone to the best restaurant of my life. Which one's more powerful? Word of mouth every single time. And you do that by doing a great job with the person in front of you. So I'm really glad you sort of said that. I just kind of want to link that into any entrepreneur, business people that listen to this, just starting out. So that's real, real powerful what you said. Now, how did you then transition from working with sort of gen pop people into training some superstars? I don't know if I can name drop on this, but you know, Ziggy Marley, name one of the people sure. that's, that's on your, um, your your social media. Again, massive name, like Bob Marley's son, like huge guy. Like, how did you go from that? that that's, that's a massive jump. And like, how did you pick up that kind of clients? Was it was it through word of mouth? Like, what kind of happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on something you said, and I learned this later in life and didn't understand it. And I know you know this, and a lot of people know this, but word of mouth is tremendous. But also what created that person to give word of mouth and to give the confidence of, hey, you should try this, whether it's someone doing a driveway or roofing or training, is how you made them feel. Yeah. How did you 100%. make them feel? Did you make them feel that you were a genuine person? Did you make them feel confident? How did you make them feel? And now they, they have the confidence to go, mm -hmm. you got to talk to Daniel James, you have to have him come and talk. Daniel, come and talk to this group of students, because man, he sparked something inside of me. So when you're genuine, when you're focused on people, you're going to make them feel a certain way. And we're humans. We know this, right? We can sense it. And it's going to just snowball for you. So I, I was just going, to, I was going to quickly touch on that as well. So I had a kid, I spoke in his school two years ago, two years ago, and he messaged me on Instagram two weeks ago. And he basically turned around and said, uh, don't you remember me, you probably won't. But basically, you came to my school two years ago. I'm now at college. Um, I still think about what you said to this day. Will you come and do a talk at my college? And Jimmy, you look at that and you're thinking, wow. And I, I said to Kay, I said, look at this message. So I'm going on a Monday to do this talk. And it's just like, just, just, just sort of going, it's, it's making people feel heard, uh, valued. Uh, and that, that's what it goes down to. So just to just really tap on that. People really don't understand the importance of that. And it's even just down to when you're um, having a coffee in the morning, if you go into a, uh, a Starbucks or something, just actually taking some time to speak to the barista like you actually care because you don't know the impact that will have on that one person. And again, they may not know your name. They may not give you any business. It's irrelevant. It's actually the energy that you put out there will come back to you in some way, shape or form. And I cannot stress that enough. So yeah, so I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I just want to sort of validate what you said and be like, this is, that's actually happened to me recently. So that two years ago has now actually got me a paid thing right now. So it's just a bit bizarre. 
That's beautiful. And think about that from that moment you first came into interaction with that kid to two years later in college, how many people did he interact with that you may never, ever be aware of that had that positive thing happen to them because of how you affected that individual's life, Yeah. right? times 10. And we get paid in so many ways. Money just happens to be one of them. But for I know people like us, that paying of them just saying that, that just letting you, it's it's better than any cash you can get Mm -hmm. or any, it's the best compensation. And, um, you know, and with the coffee thing, I have my kids when we go out to eat, I want them to know that we and we make sure that we take the time to tell the waitress, the waiter that we are grateful for them bringing our food in. And I, I take the time to look at them without looking at my phone. I address them because that job is something I've done. It's mm-hmm. important and I'm yep. glad they're doing it. Yeah. Agreed. Completely agree. So we kind of sidetracked. I think it's really, really important. Yeah. So, 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 how, so how did your business grow? Then? Like, how did you, cause again, this yeah, is so I, I, I stayed, I was in Southern California, a place called Temecula. Uh, it's in between San Diego and Los Angeles and my business just flourished. And I had aspirations of Number one, Arnold was a big inspiration for me and looking at that of getting into bodybuilding. I I did compete in bodybuilding of getting into maybe the entertainment industry, all that, but I never verbalized that because I thought other people would view me, especially when I was in New York as like, what would, what are you talking about? They probably wouldn't have, but it was my self-consciousness to go. I didn't have the confidence in myself to even go, Hey, I'd like to do that one day. Mm -hmm. Right. So I kept it all inside. So I am my business is super successful. And then I, at one point wanted to get into like men's fitness. I don't even know if it's around anymore. Muscle and fitness flex mm-hmm. magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I move from, I make a huge, bold move. I leave a thriving business after about four or five years. I move from the area of Temecula and San Diego to Los Angeles to give it a shot. And also a little bit, if you read my book, you'll see this. I had aspirations of possibly getting in the entertainment industry. So in addition to training people, I started taking acting classes and learning how to talk and everything because in reading and I would drive to San Diego and do that at night and study and, and then do my training. So I geographically moved to Los Angeles and I give it a go with training again, starting all over. And I give it a go at acting and all these things that maybe you didn't even know about. And now for the training side, how I got into all the celebrity clients is I just now was geographically in their area. I had zero clients. I got one client from word of mouth. And once again, I focused, I started all over. I focused on that person. And within three months again, my I am booked solid in training people. So if you're in an area that happens to have a neighborhood that does construction, construction person is eventually going to call you and go, Hey, you know, I'm looking for a trainer. If you're in the entertainment industry and you're around that area, eventually someone's going to hear and they go, we hear you do a great job. You work with so-and-so. Can you see my client? Now their client may happen to be Ziggy. It may be Shakira. It could be all these other people I got to work with. And so I started working. My phone started ringing and agents started calling me and go, I have someone, a guy I worked with that you may not know by name but he's a great actor he's been in all the marvel movies and ben foster his agents called me and said he needs to gain 15 pounds he's going from a child actor to his first leading role with bruce willis and so they called me and the next thing you know he's working with me and i'm going to the set with him and training him and seeing what he has to do and he's got to learn how to box and all these things so i just really think once again 
it's the same story in a different area. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm in Hollywood and now I'm training and I'm taking care of people. And the people that happen to be in the area are a lot of actors, models, all this stuff. And so I'm starting to get the call. And I once again, just took care of that human being. And that human being can be a housewife, it can be a father, it can be an accountant, it can be an actor, we all have basic needs. And it doesn't matter what your profession is. In the essence, we boil down to this human element. And I found that if I just take care of the human element, if I listen to people, and I try to solve their issues, I, I learned that if you want to be valued, be valuable to people. Mm -hmm. Give value to their life, give value to what they're asking for, and you'll never be out of work. You'll always be in demand and you'll be valued. And so that's how that happened. I mean, like I said, that again, especially from the celebrities, because again, going back to what we said earlier on about what do people need? They want to be seen and heard. And as a celebrity, they get seen and heard, but not for who they are. It's the role that they play. It's the celebrity status. Where actually, if you're then working with them again on that personal level, you are seeing them for them, and you are valuing them as a human being rather than them, the actor or actress, whatever it is, or the, the musician. I think that's a really important thing as well. Where you can get a bit starstruck. At the end of the day, they're just human beings. As I said we've all got the same human basic needs, and we want to be seen, valued, and heard for us, not whatever we're portraying to be. If that makes sense, I think it's a real, real powerful thing. So, where did your life then take a turn? Because obviously, again, you now it's, again it's just another twist in the tale. Like it's not all fairy tales. From now on like you're there training these celebrities like life's amazing like what then kind of happened from there because again there's a, there's a turbulent part of this um so can you sort of talk about kind of how that transitioned as well sure so you know i want people to be if they hear this and they're like man this seems like this happened overnight this didn't happen overnight we're talking over years so be patient with yourself right yeah. be patient with yourself and as long as you start getting momentum in the right direction you know, you may have heard this before, but you have a little bit of snowflake and it starts off and it starts rolling downhill and it becomes a snowball. And then pretty soon it's an avalanche and it can't be stopped. So give yourself the time to be a snowflake. Give yourself the time to be that little bit of snow that's rolling down the hill because eventually you'll get enough momentum. You'll get enough people in your corner. You'll get enough knowledge that you'll have an avalanche mm -hmm. and you'll start this. So some, some to touch a little bit about celebrity and everything too there's a whole section in my book called the good the bad and the ugly and i also found that there were dear people that are dear friends of mine ziggy's one of them sebastian maniscalco who's one of the world's biggest comedians he just did a movie with robert de niro became a dear friend of mine i introduced him to his wife um we talk all the time he just made fun of me this morning uh it sent me a text so i met some dear people but also some perceptions of what i had uh, also got shattered. And I found that some people that I thought maybe super nice that I looked up to that I idolized oh. broke my heart. Oh, it, which was horrible. I remember clearly going to a movie and I'm not going to say anything because I couldn't name it in my book because of legal reasons, but I'll just say Mr. Action Hero, mm -hmm. an action hero you and I grew up with that was beating the bad guy and saving the girl and using martial arts. All the, I, I watched his movies like 10 times. And in fact, there was a movie he had as a kid. I used my paper route money and I went and saw it and it was so good. I laid another $5 down and went right back into the mm -hmm. theater and saw it again. So <laughs> I don't, do you have time for this story? Yeah, mate, listen, story. yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, so, then I'll fair. I want to know more details. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep it to the, we'll keep it to the, as, as limited as we can go. Then I want more details. This, outside. Just know this is one of the biggest action heroes ever. Okay. 
I had a, a friend of mine that lived with me back in New York because his parents went through a divorce and he, they had a violent breakup and there was some violence in their house. So he became like a brother to me and he lived in our house uh, for many years. He would call me when he was out. This is back in the day before cell phones and all that. And my phone would ring. He'd be out and I'd be home and our home phone would ring and he would be in trouble and I would have to go and save him. And my mom would know something was going down because of the phone rang and she's like, where are you going? You have to go help him again. And so now he moves. I give him my couch to live in Hollywood. He wants to move out of the neighborhood. He's sleeping on my couch. When I move to Hollywood, he's working as a bartender for when the Lakers win the championship, they have this huge party and all celebrities are there and it's free alcohol. Well, Mr. Action hero, my buddy is a bar back making 10, 15 bucks an hour, sweating his butt off. Mr. Action Hero has a bad night. And my buddy is bringing ice and filling up the bins of the bartenders. And Mr. Action Hero has a drink of scotch and he takes his glass and he throws the glass into the bin of ice that is supposed to be mixed with drinks. And my friend goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, that's not a trash. That's the ice that I have to use for people's drinks. Now I have to empty that a broken glass and empty the whole bin and refill it up. And so Mr. Action Hero makes fun of him. And he's like, what the hell is going on? I can't, am I in bizarro land? So he goes up to the top floor, gets ice, empties the bin a half hour later, he fills it back up. Mr. Action Hero sitting there, takes his beer bottle and with all his force, throws his beer bottle into the ice and shatters it. And my buddy goes, I don't care if you're going to kick my ass. You will not do that to me. And goes after Mr. Action Hero. <laughs> now, I can name this. Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> steps in between and breaks up the fight. Okay? Wow. And Mr. Action Hero gets kicked out and passes out in his car in the parking lot drunk. Now, the guy that had been calling me when I was 19 years old at my house in upstate New York calls me from there and goes, it's two o'clock in the morning. My phone rings. I pick it up. He goes, you got to get down here. We're going to kick so-and-so's ass. Shaquille O'Neal, he goes, Shaq just had to break up the fight between us. And I'm trying to process this at two in the morning. I'm like, what are you talking about? I go, you mean Shaquille O'Neal? He goes, what other Shaq you know? <laughs> and he goes, we're going to kick his ass. He's in the parking lot right now. So now, Daniel, the guy that I had all these that I thought was the best person on the planet. That was the superhero that I held in high esteem. I put my pants on a t-shirt on, and now I'm driving down to the parking lot thinking about how I'm going to beat this guy. If we get in a fight, because I know he's known for throwing jumping, spinning kicks. And I I'm thinking I'm going to double leg take down him. I'm going <laughs> to pin him to the ground. I'm going to use jujitsu and negate his striking. So we may pit these people in high esteem, but understand that just because your title is whatever, just because you may see them on the screen, people have their own demons yep. and may not be exactly who they are portrayed to be on screen. Mm. And I, I learned I that. So, I think that's so important because like I said, it's especially when you look at some of the celebrities and what they go through when they're struggling. It's like, especially a lot of them, they are thrown into the spotlight with no tools. So again, uh, someone was using an example of Mark Zuckerberg. Whatever your views are on him, I've got my views on him. But based on maybe example, like, at, at 20 years old, he had more money than any of us could ever possibly dream of ever in a million years. Like that's going to affect you in a certain way. Again, look at Michael Jackson, whatever people's views were on him. Like the, the stuff that was thrown on him at such a young age, 
you can't comprehend it. I'm not sure, again, um, how much you've seen this, but UK listeners, the David Beckham documentary. Uh, so David Beckham was a huge uh, soccer player, um, obviously went to LA Galaxy in, in America, but um, when England got knocked out of the World Cup, this guy was 21, 22 years old, and the hatred, they literally made mannequins of him and were hanging them outside of pubs. Like, and again, he's just a young boy. And he basically made a mistake. We got knocked out of the World Cup and basically the manager kind of threw him under the bus. And you're thinking, these are just normal people. They've got their own vices, got their own issues, got their own problems. Uh, and again, I think you're completely right there. So again, thanks for sharing that story. Like I said, that not start the Shaquille O'Neal thing. That's absolutely bizarre. It's <laughs> absolutely insane. Um, so anyway, back to you and your story. Um, so then what's that kind of happened then like, with you personally? Like what, what was this next sort of turn and twist in this hell for you? Yeah, so... Uh, and Ed, to just piggyback for one second on what you said in, in, in the book, I, I wrote, there are three or four incidents. I got into, into an altercation with someone that won an Academy award on Academy award night during right after they got their Academy award, I, uh, talk show host, there was some bad things, but I've learned to give people latitude. When I wrote my book, I first had a, a perception on it when I started writing it. And then I go, we all need some latitude. And there is never been a point in time in history, in my view, where we are hold to such a high standard that everything is videotaped and everything lives on forever. So what celebrities had to deal with for many years of being in the spotlight, now an individual makes a wrong, says a wrong word or a wrong phrase or does something stupid when they're 14, can be held accountable when they're 30. Mm -hmm. So let's give everybody some latitude and understand we are all human beings. We all make mistakes. And one incident doesn't define an individual. Amen. And I think that's a mm -hmm. huge point. Yeah. So I made a turn um, in my life through training people and everything. And then, you know, just working for 30 years of helping people and learning about myself in the process and learning what, you know, resonates with human beings. And if you want to jump all the way, I can jump to where I got paralyzed if you want. Let's go with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I say... You know my story if you listen to the first episode of how I was arrested, how I had violence, how I was paralyzed by fear. I was paralyzed by anger, which led to violence. I believe I've been paralyzed twice in my life, brother. Once where I was physically paralyzed and I can only move my eyeballs. But the more dramatic one, if I have to compare the two, because I've had them both, is where I was mentally paralyzed. Although my arms could move, although I could throw a punch, although I can run, my mentality was paralyzed mm. in a selfish state about woe is me. It's other people's problems. It's other people are creating this. And I was basically stunted in my growth. Mm -hmm. And if I have to compare the two, that paralyzation was tougher. Now, we go to the time where I was paralyzed physically. I moved to Texas. My family moves to Texas. I um, am teaching jujitsu to kids. Uh, I'm, my business is once again thriving. I'm working for a company for the first time in my life. I never worked. I always worked for myself. Mm -hmm. In six months, I become number one in the nation in that company in revenue generated out of 1,000 trainers across the nation of all their clubs. And I end up getting COVID and I'll, I'll tie this all together. I end up getting COVID from teaching pride jujitsu. My kids get COVID. It's just starting out for my kids. It's a blip on the radar screen. They have some sniffles. They get over it. My wife gets it for her. She rests for me. This testadura hard head in Italian. Mm -hmm. I got a quarantine for 10 days. Okay. And I can't sit still. I'm learning to sit still a little bit more. So I'm building a garbage corral in my house. I'm doing construction. I'm, I'm doing the assault bike for an hour. 
when I should probably be resting. Mm -hmm. Okay. The reason I brought up the business thing was I was going through a business deal with this company that was going sideways. I, they actually said I was making too much money and they, they were changing the terms of my contract and it was messing. So I allowed someone to get in between my ears and, and hold my headspace, which is a lesson learned. I won't allow it to happen again, but I wasn't sleeping well mm -hmm. thinking about that. So COVID goes way harder than it should because I don't rest. I, I can't be sit still at myself. I allowed someone to hold my headspace and I get really sick. Now I recover from COVID and not long after COVID, my feet start going numb and I've returned back to work and I don't say anything to anybody. I don't tell my wife, I can't feel my feet. And that goes on for maybe a week. And then pretty soon my fingertips start getting numb where I can't feel my fingers or my hands and it's getting worse, but I'm not saying anything. I'm just like, man, this will pass in my head and I'm going to work long days. And then it starts ascending up my body where now I can't feel my ankles and I lose my urinary stream. I, I'm, I have to pee, but all of a sudden I can't pee and my vision starts getting blurry. Now, one of the last straws is before I tell my wife is my feet start getting so numb and painful, like throbbing that I'm waking up in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning and I'm filling my tub full of ice and cold water and I'm taking ice baths. It's the only thing that's relieving the pain. So I tell my wife, I, I wake up in the morning. I said, look, I'm going to go see, I have like eight or 10 clients today. And then when we come home, we may need to go to urgent care because I can't feel my feet. It's all going on two weeks. My hands, I can't feel right now. I'm trying to pee. I can't pee. And God bless my wife, Cheyenne. She is the yin to my yang. She goes, no, my husband, we're going to take the day off from work and we are going to go to the urgent care now. And thank God she said that because Daniel, we go to urgent care and things are starting to progress at a rapid rate where now this numbness is ascending up to my knees and I'm having trouble walking and I'm having trouble shaking someone's hand. It, I define it like like a double A battery that's getting drained. Mm -hmm. I mean, my power is losing. And this is someone that's defined by his physicality. So we go to urgent care. They start giving me these tests and I am going downhill quickly. And they started giving me a different test and I faint. And I'm not a person that faints. I pass out in, in the examination while the doctor's with me. They bring me back and the doctor starts talking to us and goes, look, I don't want to scare you but you are showing a lot of symptoms of a couple rare autoimmune disorders, multiple sclerosis, and this thing called GBS, which I had never heard of called Guillain-Barre syndrome. He says, we don't have the capabilities of finding out here, but I'm highly recommending that you go to emergency care right down the street at the hospital. They're going to take, we're going to order a spinal tap for you where they're going to put a needle in your spine. They're going to drain the fluid and they're going to test the proteins to find out if what we think is right. So by the time I go down there, this stuff is ascending the numbness up past my knees. Now I'm super weak. They bring me in the emergency room. They put me on a table. They numb my spine. They give me a spinal tap and they say to me, it is going to take an hour for us to get the results from the laboratory you can stay in the emergency care, which is fine, or you live a half a mile from the hospital. If you feel comfortable, you can go home. 
I don't have a great relationship with hospitals. My father ended up being in the hospital for a month with cancer when he passed and I slept with him. And it just doesn't feel like a healthy place to me between all the stuff. So I go home, I take a 20 minute nap. And the doctor said before I left, if this ascends any further up your body, you have to get back in here immediately. Because if it ascends to your heart and lungs, it will shut them down. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you will no longer be able to breathe and your heart will stop. So I take a 20 minute nap and I can no longer now feel from my waist down and I can barely walk. Okay. I went from thinking I was going to train 10 people to, I can't walk on my own. Now my wife has to help me walk. So we get to go right back to the hospital. They look at me, they test me. I have no more reflexes. They test the reflexes in my knee with the hammer. It's gone. My elbows can't feel any of that. They put me in a wheelchair and they bring me in the elevator to the ICU, the intensive care unit. And as I get up there, I can no longer walk. I see people in different states of disarray, whether they were in a car accident, whether they had COVID and it was an elderly person, whatever it may be. And I know in my heart that a lot of these people are not going to make it out of here. But I make a definitive decision in my mind that I am never going to complain. I don't know what the hell GBS is. I don't understand what's going on, but I'm never going to complain. I'm going to find a way out of here and I'm never going to say, woe is me. Mm. So they wheel me to the ICU and they give me my own room. And I make some decisions that really, I believe crafted my escaping the ICU. I get to a point where I can only move my eyeballs. I literally have become fully paralyzed. And this guy that could lift X amount of weight or do jujitsu or get in all these altercations and come out on the other side has lost all of that. But I decided that I was going to fill my room with positive vibrations. For me, that's Bob Marley, that's Ziggy Marley. So instead of listening to the beep of the heart rate monitor with all these leads they had hooked up to me or someone moaning in the next room, I didn't care what anybody thought. I played that music for me 24-7 in my room because I wanted to be surrounded by things that inspire me. My wife looked at the food, and this is something I want to tackle in the future. I love our caregivers. I love our nurses, our doctors. They're there for us in the toughest time, mm -hmm. especially when you're a patient. But the food in the cafeteria was chicken fingers and French fries. And if there was a vegetable, it had been underneath a heat lamp for a week. Yep. And my wife said, we are not going to fill your body with this food. I'm going home and I'm pure, going to puree organic foods because I couldn't swallow anymore. Everything had to be pureed for me and I had to drink it. So she went home and got those foods for me and started nourishing me on a cellular level. So now I have music and vibrations filling me on that level. I started nourishing my body on a cellular level with organic foods and vegetables. And then I said to myself, I am never going to allow my mind to go into a negative place. And I started visualizing my body healing itself. And this may sound crazy. And I am not nullifying any of the stuff the Western medicine did because they clearly helped me. But for me to be in my best position to have healing happen, I started visualizing my body healing itself. And I started doing breathing exercises and meditation. And I was asking my body politely because GBS 
your body attacks its own nerves in the myelin on your nerves. And it mm. feels like there's a foreign entity. It thinks there's, and so it starts eating the myelin sheath on your nerves. So you have no more electrical charges from your nerves and you can't, it doesn't matter how strong you are if you have no nerve endings. Mm -hmm. So I started asking my body to stop attacking itself. This is going on over the course of days. And then I start asking a little bit more demanding until I demanded my body to stop attacking itself. They gave me medication. There were tons of things that happened in that hospital from me. Listen, when I lost my physicality, I learned to use my mentality because it was all I had left. There were times where I, I, I crapped myself in bed, where I soiled myself several times and there was no one there to help me. And I couldn't even get up or ring the button to mm. ask for a nurse to come. And when I dealt with that humility, I understand and became more compassionate for other people that may be under those circumstances. Mm. So as I lost one part of who defined me at that point, I tried to access other parts of me. Mm. And when I lost all my humanity and I'm sitting there in my own feces in bed and I can only use my, my eyeballs and I had that humility and they had to wheelchair me in the shower and, and shower me off from my own crap, I became much more spiritual in the sense of I accessed that part of me and was meditating and praying and asking for a higher power to really guide me. How did you get to that state? And um, my first question is, um, were, you, were you scared or were you very much a calm throughout this whole thing? Because the way you described that, it was almost like you were very just sort of calm. You made the decision, listen, this is how it's going to be. And that's it. Or because again, because of people hearing that, they're like, well, I'm not like you, John. I can't do that. Like you're clearly a different kind of breed to me. And even I'm thinking this, I'm like, I know this isn't how it goes. But I'm like, bloody hell, I couldn't do that. So I'm just, again, can we get a bit more like, like, what was that transition like? Did you literally make a decision and that was it? You didn't entertain any sort of negative thoughts or did you have times where you kind of went with the victim mentality and then like, no, this isn't how it's going to go down. Like, how did that kind of happen? Because um, just so people that ha happen to go through this, because for me, obviously I hope that no one ever goes through anything like this, but again, the power of the mind and the body healing itself, obviously as you said, the Western medicine did its thing, 100%. And again, you can't take that away from anything. However, I, I fully believe that the, you've got to be your own healer first. You know I mean? There's only so much the Western medicine can do. If the body's given up on itself, there's nothing you can do. So you kind of said, listen, hold on in here, let the Western medicine do its thing. So if anyone's in that situation, how did you train your mind to do that? Yes, those are great questions. And I think it, it's on several levels, Daniel. If I had not been arrested, if I had not slept on floors, if I had not gone through all the things that life had thrown me earlier, I may not have been prepared to handle this. So those things that I saw as shameful that I would never talk about for years, those things that I saw as weaknesses in me ended up becoming the thread of who I was and put me in a better place mentally to make a definitive decision to go, I am not going to go to this place of negativity, but mm. those things had to happen to me. So when you're out there and you're listening and you have the shame connected to something that happened to you in the past, know that if you take it forward and you own it, it can help you on the next challenge, mm. right? If mm. I hadn't come to terms with those things, it wouldn't have helped me. It would have been another thing that's happening bad to me, as opposed to those things happened to me. And at the time I thought they were bad, but they have prepared me for this moment right now, which is the toughest moment where I am paralyzed and I needed them. So that helped me, my friend. Mm. But I made those definitive decisions and it was not in spite of no fear being there because there was fear there, but it was in spite of the fear, right? Because those, 
I didn't allow things that creep into my mind. I have to say that I stayed as positive as possible. If if negative thoughts crept into my mind, I don't remember one right now as I'm sitting and talking to mm -hmm. you here. But it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you can't have fear and still have a positive mind. Mm -hmm. Right? And I want people to understand this. I train every day and I hope I never have a situation like this again or ha I wish I never had this situation but I meditate every day. I do that for my mind because I understand mental health is as important as physical health. So I was able to fall back on things that I work on all the time. And I would love to give in the show notes, some things that I do that people can access for free. Like I do Wim Hof breathing and I do that every day. And I do gratitudes every day because in my time of need, I had those tools to access. I believe it's why seals or military men go through boot camp because under the time of stress they can now call upon the tools that they created through challenges through hardship through being uncomfortable mm. and so i was more in a position at that point as 50 year old john petrelli to to deal with that than mm -hmm. 20 year old john petrelli so there was fear there was a time where my man i had lost all my physicality they had me in a wheelchair and I had chest pains in my left side of my body, which is your heart. And they didn't know if I was experiencing a stroke. They hooked me up to EKG. They found there was no stroke. They didn't know what was happening. They said it could be a byproduct of the medication we've given you, but we don't know. And so to be safe, they put me in hour and 45 minute ultrasound or MRI CT scan. I get wheeled to there. My wife is in my room and I have to pee so bad. And as a man, I can't even stand up and pee. So the nurse, God bless her. She's probably 110 pounds, beautiful Filipino lady. She does her best to help me. I go to stand to pee and I go unconscious and I code out. And the call goes over to loudspeaker for a code. And every doctor on the floor runs to me. And my wife knows that's happening and it's me because she knows I just left the room. So she's, you know, she's going through a lot with that. Mm. And there was a nurse that was the head nurse, a beautiful person named Jama, who's from Africa, who is in his thirties. And what you would see more as a, like an alpha male, you'd maybe think of him more as a fireman or not, maybe not a nurse, maybe just my narrow minded head. And he said, when he comes out of the MRI, we need to catheter him because I can no longer pee on my own. And I was so emasculated that here I am. I can no longer stand. I can no longer pee on my own. They're going to stick a tube up my body so I can pee. And I pleaded with him, listen, please just give me another chance. I know I can pee on my own. And he wasn't having it. And in that moment, I, I, I so disliked him. <laughs> and, I, and I thought about ways I can get out of it as I was in this hour and 45 minute ultrasound MRI. And as I came out, he said strong and he's like, no, we're going to do that. And they, they ran a big tube up my dork and, mm -hmm. and I could no longer pee on my own. So one more step, right? I've already, I've already crapped myself. Now I can't pee. And I came to understand that, that nurse Jama, we came to talk days later and he was exactly what I needed. Because if I had my own druthers, I wouldn't have done that. But now I didn't no longer need to worry about that. And they can work on me. And I learned that he came from this family in Africa where his dad was killed 
at a young age and he had to go into dumpsters and get food for his family. And he came to America and he said, I wanted to help people and become a nurse because other people helped me. And there was this, there was this charity in town that would bring us food. So he came to America to do that. And we connected on this level. And so you never know, like you may think something's there to harm you or to hurt you, or may not do what you want in the moment, but it was exactly what I needed. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this this you mate, you have said like you did last time so much gold there. So I'm just going to try and pick a few of this. For me, I, I'm a big believer that life happens for us. I literally had a conversation yes. with a client earlier on today. Life happens for us, but in order for it to happen for us, it first has to happen to us, and we don't really realize that when it's happening to us, it's hard. But actually, it happens for us. It always happens for us. But it's got to happen to us first. And then I love the fact you also mentioned that fear and a positive mindset can exist together like it's not one or the other just because you're in fear doesn't mean you lose the positive mindset and just because you have a positive mindset doesn't mean that you can't have fear that can coexist together really really powerful stuff um because you can obviously come really conscious of your time here um how did you come through that like what what, what was the the, the the thing of that how did you overcome it like what was the, the yes. outcome? are you all clear now like what's what situation so i'll wrap it up for you so 10 days later they wheel me out in a wheelchair and they believe they had stopped through this medication ivig they had stopped the progression of it they don't know for sure, right, if it was going to progress or not. But I get wheeled out in a wheelchair and I start physical therapy immediately. And I want people to understand that, yes, there is positive mindset and it starts your physicality, but you have to do the work. At the yeah. end of the day, you have to do the work. And so I started doing physical therapy five days a week with a physical therapist, two days a week on my own. So seven days a week. And I didn't stop. There was a point, Daniel, where I could only move this finger. And I didn't say, this sucks. I can't move my other fingers. I said, I'm glad I can move this finger. I'm mm -hmm. going to move this friggin' finger until I can move the next one. And I didn't focus on the shit I didn't have. I focused on what I did have. Mm -hmm. And I eventually graduated from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane. And there were times where I failed over and over. And I tried to walk at midnight from the couch to the chair. And I fell. And I had to pick myself back up. And I did it because my wife at night, because my wife would never let me do that on my own because she cares too much about me, but I never complained. And I put in the work every day, working with an amazing physical therapist, Brandon White helped me and just constantly going to it till I could get my body back. And in this process, I'm just going to put this tidbit in there. Remember, I had dyslexia, yeah. diagnosed with dyslexia. I suck at school. I get inspired by listening to an audio book. And I said, I have this story. That is my life. And I can really only move my fingers now. So now would be a great time. I'm going to be out of work for three to four months to put a book together. Mm. Never written anything. So I listen to this book. I contact the person that the book's about and know him through history. He puts me in touch with his editor. And I contact this guy. I go, I got the story. And he's like, listen, I just came off of this project. I promised my girlfriend I'm not going to do another book anytime soon. I'm dead dog tired. And I talked to him a little bit. He goes, okay, okay, send me, because I'm persistent. He goes, send me an email with a chapter or whatever you've written. So I email it to him. And he calls me back 10 minutes later. He goes, send me something else that you've written. <laughs> I sent it to him. He calls me back. He goes, son of a bitch. He goes, I said I was not going to do another book. But if you want to do this book, I'm going to do it with you. You have a story to tell that can help people. So I'm out of work for four months. And so here's someone that hasn't written anything. I'm working the keyboard. I'm having people help me. I have this guy that's my editor, then becomes my co-author. And we create a book that ends up becoming a number one Amazon new release that I've never done anything like that. And, and I've got people call me from jail that have read this book or have had GBS. 
And I say that, Daniel, not because, yay, great, I did that, because I want people to know that if I had all these problems in my life, that I had these challenges, that I got arrested, that I was paralyzed, that I have dyslexia, and I can do that, imagine what you can do. Imagine your possibilities. Mm -hmm. It is all possible. If I can do this, you can do 10 times more. You got to put in the work. You got to believe. You got to surround yourself with people that are going to lift you up. They're going to hold you accountable. But shit, it is possible. So I want them to know that they can do anything. Man, I need to get a train. I need to go train or something. Jesus, mate, you're, you're bumping me. I'm sitting thinking, fuck, you know, like I need to go do something. <laughs> but yeah, like people listening to this, like, yeah, like pump, pump me up. Um, honestly, mate, your, your story is just insane. Um, you are again, so inspirational. Um, I love everything about it. I've said that from day one, like your energy is just insane. Um, like I said, just just everything about you, mate. Honestly, I, I feel like I've known you forever. Like just it, the last time, the first time I spoke to you. And as soon as you jumped on the call again, it's like we just spoke like a week ago. Like, and again, it's almost a month. It's just, mate, you just, just your energy is fantastic. Um, and again, it's very infectious, like your enthusiasm and one same mission of trying to help people. Um, where can people, so what's, what's your book called and where can people um, purchase the book? 100%. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's Confessions of a Hollywood Trainer. You can find the book on Amazon. It's on Audible. The audio book has three hours of extra content. If you think I talk a lot now, you probably need a, a nap from hearing me talk. I apologize, but we do like a podcast style. We borrowed a little page out of David Goggins' book. Yes. And so the audiobook is awesome. It's on Amazon, uh, pretty much everywhere you can find it. And you can find me on johnpetrelli.com. My next thing I want to do is I love training. I feel blessed and I see people. I see 10 people today, but I'm going into taking this to a bigger platform and I want to do some motivational speaking speak to people tell them my story and understand that their story can be their power. And mm -hmm. so I'm working on getting in front of bigger groups of people because I want to empower more people to know that they can do whatever they want, that it's all possible. Mate, I know you're going to smash that. Cause like I said, you, you've inspired people today. And then on the, the previous episode you did, like you're, you're just going to me and Mikey both do public speaking. Like I, I think we'll both agree that you're going to absolutely smash that mate. So I look forward to hearing your journey. I look forward to seeing your journey and anything I can do to support you in the future, mate, you let me know. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving us this platform. Uh, one last thing, people can contact me. If yes, you... yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that. Where can they find you? Yeah, they can find me, John.Petrelli on Instagram, Facebook, John Petrelli. But I want to put this out there, Daniel. I don't remember if we did it last time. Caregivers, firemen, policemen, teachers, I will donate my time to help you. If you reach out to me, you have an organization. I have an affinity for you. You help us in our times of need. So don't be afraid to reach out to me. I give a certain amount of my time away each year. Please contact me. Let me know how I can help. I will be honored to help you that help us every day. Honestly, mate, this is why you're a legend. Like yeah. gen genuinely, uh, and going all the way back to um, your friend Derek, and then Jimmy, and the whole full circle of like Jimmy helped you, you helped you, mate. It's just and now you're helping like hundreds of thousands of people, um, mate. Your inspiration, uh, like I said. I'm proud of you. Hopefully you're proud of you. That's the most important thing because honestly, mate, you're doing some real incredible stuff. Uh, and it's genuinely been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, mate, I think you're incredible. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Same here.